Hey, welcome to Lakeview Sermon of the Week. We're so grateful to have you here, and we hope you enjoy today's message. Good to see everybody. Uh, wow. I might not be strutting like I normally do. Um, I got sunburn on my thighs. And so I put my car keys in and was like, oh, what is that? Oh, it's my car keys. Switch, switch legs here. Uh, but I don't know, the anointing might hit me and y'all just might see me take off anyway. Uh, but I'm going to do my dead level best. Uh, God is so good. I love in the end of scriptures when it says that the spirit and the bride, you know what they say? They say come. It's that even Holy Spirit and the bride operating in her fullness, do you know what her best message is? Come. Come, Lord Jesus. Come. Come. And that's really what we're settling into. That's what this whole series has been all about, the divine proposal. It's to, create, to show us the paradigm of how God sees us and how beautiful he thinks we are. But also the bride's response to the bridegroom and how she throws herself at him and is in love with him and sees every detail in him. And so this whole scriptures of uh, the, this whole book that we've been looking into, the Song of Solomon, um, has just really just been so beautiful to see the engagement between the bride and the bridegroom. But at the end of the day, um, if you've learned anything from this, it's that the spirit and the bride just say come. It's like they just want presence. They just want to be with Jesus. Like that's, that's the simplicity of the message with all the technical jargon and the different details and the imagery and the metaphor and the, all the similes and the language that's to show us the richness of this. At the end of the day, if you just can just say, Lord Jesus, just come. Just be here. Then you really got the message of the whole scriptures. <laughs> like, like everything that Jesus was aimed at was anything that would separate us towards from the love of God. Like Jesus directed all his wrath, not at us, but he directed all his wrath at the thing that would separate us from him. And so this is Jesus' main goal is to, is to bring us into union with him. Like this is what the scriptures are all about and what they're saying. So, uh, so let's look at this. This will be our last installment of the divine proposal. Uh, has it been good so far? Has it been good? Yeah, I think so. Uh, Song of Solomon, chapter 8, and we'll start in verse 5. Now, when we start off in verse 5 here, there's a Hebrew word that's uh, sometimes translated what, but here it's translated who. Um, and so I think this is, this is poignant here because in some translations it might say what is kind of coming from the distance and to meet us, and then in some versions it would say who. Who would be the better translation here? Uh, I think we can get hung up with that. Like, what's around the corner? What's over the hill? And when our question is what, we can uh, operate in fear and anxiety. Uh, but when our question is who is over the hill? Who is around the corner? Who is over 
the next thing that we can't see. And when we begin to see that it's actually King Jesus, suddenly the anxiety of the future is gone because we're not asking what, we're asking who. And when we can answer that who, that who question, this is what the bride is, is beginning to, to point out to because her maidens are calling out, who is that coming? And she knows right who it is because she's with him as they're coming over the hill into the city. Um, in verse 6, it talks about the power of love. This is the first time love is given. Most of the time, love in the Song of Solomon has been given as like a descriptor uh, of what it's like. This time, we find love getting an actual definition. So uh, we begin to step into, in this last chapter, we step into the reality, the concretes of these profound and compelling metaphors uh, of love. And then it ends in the section today in verse 7 where she begins to talk about the value of it, the value of love, how much love is worth. And that's really what the wisdom literature is all about. Um, when you see uh, Job and when you see Ecclesiastes and these other things, um, Proverbs, it, wisdom's always mentioned as like uh, it's more valuable than rubies or gold. So here uh, we get this kind of parallel imagery with love, that love is beyond value, that not just wisdom, but love and wisdom are quantified by this treasure that if you can find it, if you can get a hold of it, it's more valuable than anything else. That you could ever find. And so, so these things kind of get uh, laid out here. So let's go ahead and look. These are the maidens who are watching this love relationship between the bridegroom and the bride. And here is their question, as we talked about earlier, verse 5. Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? So notice the question there is who? Who is coming? And you see this relationship where she is leaning on her beloved. The picture here is like a, a, uh, a kingly procession. Uh, it's like, uh, um, this is a kind of a fancy word, but we'll use it and then kind of describe it. But have you ever heard the word peliquin? Anybody? No, somebody said pelican. No, 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 pelican. So the idea here is, is that uh, in ancient uh, times, especially in India and the Orient and those places, um, y'all probably seen this maybe on movies where like there was a poles um, and a platform and the king sat on it and the people carried their king in like that. Uh, so here's the picture here is like this, this pelican, uh, this, this throne being carried. And not only on the throne is Solomon, but his beloved is leaning in on him. So it's the picture of the king coming into glory and the picture of his bride with him. So they're saying, who is this coming? And they look, oh, okay, this is Solomon. So this would be a picture, an archetype of Jesus and his bride coming back into glory, leaning in on each other and coming in to take their rightful place of glory and majesty. Um, so this is kind of the beauty of it. So it gives us kind of a picture of who's on that thing, right? Because in, if you remember when uh, they created the Ark of the Covenant and they carried this gold box on staves, uh, there was nothing on it, right? <laughs> there was, it was just a box. And they would carry in this invisible God on it. And so it was laughable to the nations that God actually put them in a place to be um, chided and to be uh, criticized because they were carrying 
what looked like an empty box. It was like, where's your king? Uh, he's there, trust me. Just, uh, you know, wait a second, he'll show up, <laughs> right? And so God puts us in these positions to where we're carrying in his presence that can't be seen. But there's no doubt it can be felt when we begin to walk into the beauty and the majesty of what it is. But here Solomon gives us a picture of what's in that place. What's in that place is King Jesus, but also who's to the right hand of the Father. It's us, and we're leaning in on Jesus, the picture of Jesus and John at the dinner table where John's leaning in on Jesus' chest. It's a picture here of this is what's riding in. This is what's coming into the fullness of the reality of the beauty of the consummation of all things at the end of the age, which is Jesus Christ and his bride returning to the earth to rule and reign throughout all eternity. That it's not an army procession, it's a bridal march. Come on. It's like God defeats the powers with a wedding. He defeats the principalities of powers by a teenager that's pregnant. Is that okay? Okay. okay. Let's move on. Let's move on. I saw that look. Don't, don't look at me with that tone, okay? Now get this. The beloved to her lover. Now watch what she says as they're approaching. Remember the picture of this procession of the king and his bride. She looks over to the king and she says, under the apple tree, I aroused you. Now this gets kind of crazy, I know, but just go with me here. Uh, there your mother conceived you. There she, was she bore you, who was, in a who was in labor of childbirth. You see the imagery here. And she's talking to the king about how he was conceived. And so her hopes are, that she could be conceived with the same kind of life in the same kind of way. So you see this beautiful imagery of the bride leaned in on the chest of the king and then dreaming about their relationship. It's like she's saying, I so trust you that I want to have a family with you. You've so captured my heart, I'm actually thinking about generations down the road. And that's what I love when the church really starts to capture the beauty and the image of Jesus. We don't just think about ourselves and our mess. We begin to think about, hey, what about those who haven't heard? What about those beyond us? What about my children? What about these? And we begin to get outside of ourselves because we're so secure in our love relationship, we can actually think about other people. That's the beauty of evangelism. Why don't we see more evangelism going forth, even personally in our life? Is because we're so self-consumed and so insecure in our relationship with God that we're not free enough to tell somebody else about something that's so beautiful. So we create these formulas where we can postulate the gospel in a little conversation or break it down into ABCs of salvation and we miss out on the beauty and the majesty of what's actually going on. Thank you for those good amens. Moving on. So she's explaining where he came from because this is the grand beautiful thing that happens when we begin to have lineage. When we have lineage, we can understand where we came from. It's like my daughter. My daughter could go to the hospital and she could find her birth record. 
She could find the doctor who birthed her. She could find all that stuff out. But you know one thing she couldn't find at the hospital? She couldn't find the story of how me and her mother fell in love. She couldn't find the story of how we planned and, and dreamed and prayed about having a daughter like her. See, you can only get that story from relationship. You can only get that story from the oral history of the heart of the parents. And so it's like this beautiful thing of she knows where he came from. She's taught. She's, there's lineage here. There's, there's a connection to the previous generation that would describe how he got there. So she would begin to dream for herself based upon the previous generation and what that love looked like and what it produced. And then to say, hey, could we produce something similar that would be that beautiful? It's a beautiful picture here. Um, I don't mean to be so poetic, but it's just what the story requires here is that it's this beautiful love story uh, coming to a conclusion. Um, let's look at verse 6. This is where it gets really cool here. Set me, this is the bride still talking to the king, set me like a cylinder seal over your heart, like a signet on your arm. For love is as strong as death. Passion is as relenting as Sheol. Its flames burst forth. It is a blazing fire. So this is where the Song of Solomon is made an attempt here to probe what is the meaning of love and what is its thing. And notice what love is juxtaposes itself or puts itself next to to describe how strong it is. Like I would think love is as strong as something beautiful. That's what I would do. Love is as strong as a diamond. What does the author here do? Love is as strong as death. What is the separating reality that we all have to face, no matter how good you are or how bad? No, it's the universal principle of the separating factor is always death. It's the unavoidable reality. So what the author does here is shifts our gaze to, the, to death being the unavoidable reality and says, no, 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 my friend. Something stronger than death is an unavoidable reality and that is to gaze upon King Jesus and His love is stronger than death. Like we think the unavoidable reality is death. I want to submit to you the unavoidable reality is love. It's love. It's staring you right in the face. It's King Jesus looking you dead in the eyes, telling you how much he loves you and wanting you to trust him enough to lay your authority at his feet. And this is what the bride begins to do. Do you know whose idea it was to be owned by the other one? It's the bride's. Set me as a seal. Set me as a seal. Not just on your arm, not just on the outside. Not just what you can give me and what your power can do for me. But set me as a seal on your heart. 
Put me as a seal in your So the bride here is handing over her rights. She's handing over her autonomy. She's handing it all over to Jesus. Why? Because he's so powerful? No, because he's so proved how faithful he is that she can't think of any response other than what would be the most suitable, which is to bow a knee and say, it's all yours. See, the power that Jesus yields is not power over. It's power under. That it's power that lifts up. It's like Jesus comes and he doesn't conquer with a sword. He conquers by being murdered on a cross. He's like, strip me of everything and I'll show you that what is internally inside of me is actually goodness and love and it's an unchangeable reality that no matter what the world throws at me, I don't change for the world. The world changes for me. And so it's like Jesus comes in with this love and he's like, he goes to death. I'm like, the principalities and powers says, man, we'll kill this guy and that's how we'll be rid of him. But they forgot something. That song of Solomon was trying to tell them. There's a love that's stronger than death. And when that love appears, it, it, it just undoes the principalities and powers. They can't even stomach it. They don't understand it. But this is the kind of love that Jesus is showing the bride. And she's seen this self-sacrificial love. She's seen this beauty in this king. She's seen in his eyes and sees there's no false motives. And so she says, set me as a seal on your heart. That seals in those times would show ownership. And there was two kinds. There was a signet ring. Y'all probably seen this where they melt the candle wax and, you know, kind of stick it. And that's like the show, that's the seal. And nobody gets to open that seal unless you have the authority. Okay, so this is a cylinder seal in mind here. So what they would do with the cylinder seal is they would have the inscriptions written all the way around it. And they would get it in soft clay. And they would push it forward. And it would impress on that clay the statement of ownership. Now watch. Here's what happened. Is the remember when men were created and women in Genesis? When God got in the clay and started forming them. It was this inscription of the image of God rolled over the soft clay to impress his fingertips on every part of their being. Now watch what she's asking. God, you've done that to me. But God, would you put a seal on your heart that would say, I belong to you, but also you belong to me too. <laughs> oh! Can we handle it? It's a lot. It's a lot. I get it. You're thinking, oh, no way I want to impress my name on God. I'm terrible. And God's like, well, I think you're beautiful. <laughs> it's, like, it's like God is trying to get us out of these mindsets as if his death, as if he was sad that he died for us or disappointed. He's not disappointed. He's trying to pull you out of the false mindsets and the religiosity you've put on yourself that makes you think you're holy for telling everybody how bad you are. That's not Bible. Bible is that God has done such a work in my life and by His grace, He's brought me face to face with the King of all kings. This is what it is. And so it's like God has rolled out His seal on us and said, I'm making you in the image of God. It's like my daughter with Play-Doh. She'll get kitchen tools and start working out Play-Doh. 
It's like God is saying, okay, this lady's saying, okay, you've rolled that out on me. But is there a place in your heart where you can put my name on your heart? <laughs> what an ask. That's crazy. That's like crazy town. Would you ever think, that, God, put my name on your heart? <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, you're just like, God, can I please get into heaven? Please, please. And it's like, we picture St. Peter at the gate, like, well, I guess, yeah, go ahead, get in there. <laughs> but when the bride knows who she is, and when she knows who owns her, she'll make the statement of, oh, my name is on your heart. And I can feel and see and sense the love that you have for me. So she's expressing the ownership of an object. But an ownership, not some cheap transaction, but an ownership where she's handed over her power to the king. It's like this is what God does. He doesn't twist your arm. Um, he doesn't do that. You know what he does? He just keeps loving on you until you give him more, more of your authority. <laughs> it's, like, it's, like, it's like he lets you f fail with that little thing you won't give him. Like, ah! And he's like, okay, well, well let me know when you're ready. <laughs> and then you give it to him with shaking hands. <laughs> and then he like, takes it away and does this beautiful thing and you're like, why didn't I give him that sooner? It's like that's how God chips away at our authority. It's like, it's like every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. It'll be because we finally get quit, we handed over all the vestiges of the things that we weren't willing to give up and we finally give them up and we're like, oh man, why didn't I do that way a long time ago? But God is so patient and he's so kind. He's like this bridegroom that just keeps loving on us until we begin to start believing how much he loves us. That this seal has a special connection with the death that we talked about. That seals were often deposited in tombs so that the, so that the dead could take them to the afterworld and say, hey, look, here's who I belong to. So when he says a love is as strong as death, what was when Jesus was buried? There was a tomb, right? And then it was what? Sealed with the Roman signet that said, nobody can open this unless you have the authority from Rome. But Jesus really ain't into the authority of Rome. He will just go ahead and break that seal and say there's a new kingdom, a beautiful kingdom that's built upon love that is stronger than death, that is stronger than power dynamics, that's stronger than political pundits, and will actually through love and self-sacrifice begin to filtrate the entire world and conquer the world systems. A love that's stronger than death. Jesus' authority his resurrection broke the seal over the tomb. So the New Testament reality is not love as strong as death. It's love stronger than death. A love that not only is as sure as death, but it brings about a resurrection where we would never have to die again. This is the beautiful story that Jesus is bringing us into. And this is the New Testament reality. Ephesians 1, chapter 13. And when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed in Christ, you were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. 
Get this. Ephesians 4.30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Why? By whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So we see this just replete throughout Scripture of this sealing reality of ownership that would say, you are mine, act like it. You want the gospel? You're mine, act like it. <laughs> like that's the reality, like that's the gospel. So next time you go to somebody's house, say, hey, you're his, act like it. How's that for a truncated gospel? All right, verse 7. Now watch, he goes into this other reality. And, and without, ancient, without, without ancient eyes, I don't know that you can see it because it just, just sounds poetic, but there's so much more going on here. Verse 7, surging waters cannot quench love. Flood waters cannot overflow it. If someone, here's the value, if someone were to offer all his possessions to buy love, the offer would be utterly despised. <laughs> now, who is the bride talking to here? The king, Solomon, right? But then the figure in type would be King Jesus. So look what she's saying. If King Solomon sold all his things to buy love, the offer would be pushed back, say it's not enough. In other words, the price that God paid to buy you and redeem you was so valuable that the offer that King Solomon, the, one of the, arguably the one of the richest men that have ever lived, would have been pushed on the table and he'd have pushed it back and it said, it's not enough. It's not enough. What's he saying? Love can't have a sticker price on it. Love can't have a sticker price. But notice this theme here of these strong waters and these flood waters. It's like the ancient mindset had this kind of, um, kind of picture of when God created the world, uh, their gods even, they would um, have to fight this chaotic beast. So there was like this chaotic, and in Jewish literature it would be called Leviathan, this chaotic water creature. Um, in the Ugaritic um, kind of material, it would be called uh, Tiamat. And so the idea was is that Marduk and their creation narrative, the Enuma Elish, which I know I'm getting way out here, but just, 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 just ignore me for a second while I do this. Um, but uh, Marduk actually slays the, the chaos dragon and then with half of him creates the waters above and with the other half creates the seas below. So when we see Yahweh in Genesis 1, it's chaotic waters that he's hovering over. That the world is without form and void, that it's chaos, it's not in order. And so it's, a, it's an argumentative polemic against the chaos water monster. And it's saying Marduk didn't do that. Baal didn't do that. It was Yahweh that came in and slayed the chaos and began to put order to it. So when we see that the strong waters couldn't stop it, it's a picture here of the creation narrative that even a flood can't stop the beauty of what God is putting together and what he's building. So when the enemy comes in like a God raises a standard. You see the, the motif here. 
So it's even saying, as powerful as death is, as sure as that is, love sure. As powerful as the floodwaters are and the chaos of the world, love stronger. And so it centers us on this, this beautiful reality. Um, Luke chapter 7, verse 36, and we're going to land the plane right here. There's this beautiful story of this bride that has been this unlikely bride, we'll say it that way, that has basically just hands all her authority over to King Jesus. Uh, Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. So this would have been like a picture of a banquet. And whenever the Jews would uh, open their house and, and have these kind of banquets, they would be reclining. They wouldn't be sitting. They would actually be reclining. Um, and so the idea was to be sitting, you're leaning, putting your weight on your left arm, and your feet are actually bent back behind you, away from the table. Praise God. And um, so the feet are going that way, and you're leaned in, and you were to be face-to-face -face with the host. So this is uh, kind of one of those meals. Now, when they, one of these meals were, um, were orchestrated, um, the pious Jews would consider themselves noble if they would let the poor in. Uh, they couldn't come into the main room, but they could at least kind of gather outside and they would have to sit there and they couldn't talk to the host. So if they're really trying to grandstand and talk about uh, how holy they were, they would let some of the poor in. They couldn't engage with the host or ask any questions, but they could at least sit in the room. Uh, so we're not sure how this young lady gets in there, but she gets in there and she might just bust in. I'm not sure. Um, but they're having this banquet. They're reclining. Uh, picture this, just so you can get an idea of how you might be offended too. Uh, let's say you had somebody over for um, Christmas dinner. And your family's around there and you're going around the table. And everybody's sharing these little beautiful little moments. And, and then a prostitute breaks in and interrupts the meal. The uninvited somehow find their way into this party. <laughs> and so this is what's kind of happening here. This special meal that's got order and it's got, you know, uh, tradition. And look what happens. Verse 37. Then a woman of that town who was a sinner. <laughs> like that little side note there. Uh, learned that Jesus was dining at the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfumed oil. Anytime sinners mentioned in the Bible, it's a pejorative. It would, and sinner was like this, it would be like a curse word in a sense, or like a um, just, just kind of this insulting thing. And it usually meant two kinds of people. It meant tax collectors, those who had sided with the Roman Empire, and felt like they were trying to undo Jewish identity, or it was the sexually impure, which was mainly Gentiles, non-Jews in that area. And if you were sexually impure and you were a Jew, you were considered a non-Jew anyway. So this is, lady is called a sinner. She gets this moniker uh, placed on her. 
So she has this reputation of being morally loose. And verse 38, as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair and kissed them and anointed them with perfumed oil. So as you put yourself there, you're there, Jesus is at the table. It's a special dinner. And this woman of the night busts in with a jar of ointment. She's breaking all kinds of protocols here because heads were the thing that were supposed to be anointed. He didn't anoint feet. And here he is leaned to his left face to face with the host and his feet back behind him and she doesn't even look him in the face. She's standing behind him weeping on his feet with her, with her tears and using her hair as a washcloth or in the south a wash rag and uh, wash rag here. And, uh, and she's anointing his feet with precious perfume. It's like, wow, this is a spectacle. It's a spectacle. That Jesus, now watch what they do. They immediately start attacking his prophetic gift. Watch this. Verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is who's touching him. That she is a sinner. See, see that's, what, that's the, the misidentification of the office of the prophet. The office of the prophet isn't to tell everybody how bad they are. The office of the prophet is to tell people the potential and the great high calling that is on their life. And it's to call them forward into what's possible, not diagnose what's wrong. Sitting there, if this guy would have been a prophet, he'd have known what kind of gal this was. It's like, dude, he is a prophet. But not only is he a prophet, he's a bridegroom. He's a husband. Who's at his feet? His bride. She comes in, has this moment at his feet. Now, in ancient times, the most attractive thing about a woman was her hair. Like, times change, cultures change, and people grab onto different things, but it was hair. So a woman, to show that she was not available and that she was married, would wear a hair head covering. It wasn't some kind of controlling thing. It was actually a thing aimed at respectability. It was a virtual signal that everybody could look at, like we have a ring now, right? It was a virtual signal that her head was covered. It's like, oh, she's not available. So she comes in, no head covering, and she's laying her hair at the feet of Jesus. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 5, that if a woman's going to prophesy in church, she's got to do so while what? 
our heads covered. Do you know what that's all about? That's all about authority. Because in those days, Claudius put a law in place that said if you were a slave or that you weren't married, you couldn't wear a head covering. So Paul is actually saying that when you're in God's house, you don't listen to Caesar. You go ahead and cover your hair because you have authority over your own head. That they would even shave slaves' hair. They would even shave slaves' hair. They didn't have authority over their own head. Paul says, when you come into God's house, you have authority over your own head and you can cover your head when you're in here and you can even prophesy. So what is this saying here, these cultural overtones? She didn't have a head covering. So she moved her availability from sin and a wrong lifestyle. And she put her availability on the feet of Jesus. By not having her head covered and washing his feet with her tears and her hair, she was saying, Jesus, I'm available exclusively to you. It's that God is looking for a bride that's not perfect. He's looking for a bride that's available exclusively to Him. And you might not have much to give. Let me tell you what you got. You got your availability. We've all got the same amount of availability when it comes to God. To open our hearts, to open our lives. But that we would see Jesus the way she saw Him. And that we would see Him as so valuable that we would just push all our authority onto Him. And say, Jesus, set me as a seal on your heart. Set me as a signet ring on your right arm. This is the beautiful picture of the gospel. That God can make anyone a bride. <laughs> that he can make anyone a bride. So her hair would indicate not only humility, but also her marginal and social status. And so, do you know what Jesus does? And we won't go on and read the rest, but you know what he does? The host that tries to shame Jesus and shame her, he shames the host. <laughs> ah, he shames the host. And he says, you know, if somebody had a lot of sins and were forgiven, and then you got another scenario where somebody thinks they don't have a lot of sins and they were forgiven... Who would actually feel like they were forgiven more and would love more? And the guy's like, uh, the one who was forgiven much. Like, oh, okay, I was just saying if you were tracking with what's going on here. <laughs> I was just saying what you, what you were thinking. See, the problem with the bride is the bride thinks that she's got less sin than other members of the, of the, bride, the bridal community. And what Jesus is trying to say here is that it's not about these levels or amounts of sin. It's about authority. It's about who's going to give all to Jesus and who's not. Like, that's what it's about. You say, man, I've done so much stuff. I can't. It don't matter. You just put all that on his feet. You just say, here, take it. It's a matter of authority. It's why Jesus is the king. It's why the gospel is about the king Jesus. Gospel, it's this picture of authority. 
It's that no matter what I've done, no matter who I've determined I am, I put it all into Jesus. And I say, Jesus, you're my Lord. You're my Lord. And when I do that, I begin to see how valuable he is. I begin to see how valuable I am to him. And then I quit looking down my nose at the sins of other people because I don't have to operate in an insecurity to think I'm getting God's attention because I'm doing less sin than somebody else. I'm actually operating in a love relationship with him that invites other sinners into the same reality that I've experienced. This is the picture. This is the gospel. It's Jesus-centered. doesn't have to do with you and how good you are. <laughs> it's about Jesus and how great he is. <laughs> and we just get lost in it. To where we're not even thinking about sin issues anymore. It's like, sin issues? I, I'm his and he's mine. Why, why would I want to sin and hurt that relationship? Oh, I digress. Actually, I don't. I got a few more points. No, I'm just kidding. I don't. I think I'm out here. So enter the next chapter, Luke 8, and we are introduced to a woman named Mary Magdalene who was delivered from seven devils. Anybody seen The Chosen in that, in that moment? <laughs> oh, my God. Um, we don't know that that's Mary Magdalene, but fourth century priests preached that that was because it seems to be dovetailed. But if it was her, do you know how she got rid of those seven devils? Through worship. Jesus didn't even say, get out of here, devils. She just worshiped and passed her authority to him, and the deliverance just happened. Now watch, it gets better. So after that, guess what? She sends the benchmark. So in John chapter 12, when an anointing goes down in Bethany, this time, it's Jesus' cousin Mary. And guess what she does? Anoints his feet and breaks an alabaster box over him and anoints his feet. The prostitute sets the bar for how to worship. The bridegroom, it's like, and they're trying to imitate it now. Oh, that got his attention? Oh, I'm going to do that too. It's that the kingdom dynamic is, is that the unlikely are actually the ones that set the bar and show us this is how to live. And the people that have been forgiven much that you know about, guess what? They're some of the most inspiring, gospel-centered, evangelistic people you've ever known. Why? Jesus tells the secret. Who's been forgiven much? Loves much. So if you'll get a reality of how much you've been forgiven, I guarantee you, you'll start loving more than you've ever loved in your life. And your gospel will come out with power and with clarity. That people will be looking for you. You won't even have to be looking for people. People be coming to your door knocking. I want what you got. <laughs> oh, let's pray. Lord, we just thank you, God. We love you so much. God, thank you for just unraveling this beautiful love story. Thank you for this book that I wouldn't have put in the Bible. <laughs> I would have said, let's keep that out. Uh, but you said, no, it stays in there because this is the love affair that I have with my bride. This is the beautiful thing I'm doing in the earth. Is that the bridegroom is finding a bride without spot and blemish. 
So God, we push all our authority into the center. We put all that we have, every valuable thing, is that love cannot have a cost. It, it, it can't have a price on it. It's too valuable. So that's why she could put everything she had in this precious thing on, his, on Jesus' feet because she knew that love was more than that. That she stopped putting values and lines in the sand and said, okay, God, here and no further. But she finally put it all on the table and said, okay, God, there's not one thing I have that you can't have. I put my availability at your feet. <laughs> I put my availability at your feet. And when I go out into the world, my head's covered so people know I'm not available. I'm his. But when I'm in church, I take my head covering off and I drop my feet at his hair at his feet. And I say, God, I'm available. I'm available for you. And exclusively you. Thanks for tuning in. Our hope is that these messages will help you on your journey of discovering who Christ is and who you are in him. You can learn more about our ministry at lvahs.org or follow us on Instagram at lakeview.hs.